want to welcome our listeners to Zed's Not Dead podcast. We're at episode three right now. We're going to be talking about the film industry in New York. We're also going to be talking about screenwriting and independent filmmaking as opposed to the blockbusters that we're exposed to. <clears throat> so I have with me my guest, five-time Emmy Award winner. We also have five Murrows, a Cronkite Award, the Peabody, as well as some other indie filmmaking awards for uh, editing, acting, and directing. I have with me Jeffrey Turboff. 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 Yeah. Dude, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's awesome. Of course. So we're going to let you monitor that with the headphones right now. Awesome. But I had a uh, I had a couple of things uh, I wanted to ask you about and it looks like you have a list as well. Uh yeah, they're not really talking points. They're just stuff I might want to touch on. Yeah. yeah. I'd be happy to hear it, man. So uh the first thing that I want to say, other than some of the indie awards, is just some of your films that I had watched earlier uh, today. So for the listeners, for the listeners, I wanted to go through the experience that I had watching some of the short films made by uh, Jeffrey here. So I watched a horror movie by the name of Jimbo. 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 Tell us a little bit about uh, Jimbo. Jimbo is the spirit of evil, basically. Jimbo, um, the movie Jimbo, is about a veteran who is hearing voices inside of his head telling him to capture a girl and keep her in his basement, you know. And uh, at the start of the film, the girl, the woman is uh, played by the amazing Casey Black, um, is, uh, has somehow loosed her, her restraints and is uh, physically fighting uh, Norm, the veteran, uh, in trying to get out. I guess she had um, headed for the door, and then he came downstairs and saw what was going on, and then we cut into the film at that point when she's trying to, like, get out. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she 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 hurts him in that initial fight, but um, he end, ends up uh, winning the fight and uh, therefore restraining her. So... Having failed at this escape attempt, she then has to figure out how to outsmart him and get him to follow her commands instead of the commands of the voice inside of her head. I mean, inside of his head. He's hearing these voices telling him to do these things, so she decides to try to get him convinced that to she's, follow she's, her orders. She's that. playing along with the gimmick so that she could use it to her advantage. Is essentially. Thank you for saving me from that awkward explanation. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> uh, for the listeners, one one of the biggest things I noticed with Jimbo was from Casey Black. I wanted to mention because she's she's in another film of uh, that Jeff made. So, the thing that I really liked about this performance, she had a huge range in 14 minutes. Or what's the runtime? It's not very long. It's, mm, 1919 i think yeah exactly so it within less than 20 minutes we're able to see casey do everything from uh obviously she's scared at start she wakes up tied in a basement like we're saying that was her second week there or something to that long mm-hmm. uh something along those lines so mm-hmm. at this point she's uh she's set into the shock and she desperately needs a way out of the situation so you get to see the range like i had said earlier of her being terrified when she wakes up she starts bargaining with him. It's almost like going through the stages of grief in a way. Maybe not in that perfect order, but you get to see um, so many sides to this character. And she was able to do it in less than 20 minutes. And with the way you wrote her, she was able to do it in very limited time. You didn't need a feature uh, uh, length to tell a really good story. And I, I appreciated that a lot. Family values I was going to bring up as well. Yeah, Casey's really talented. And she um, she really took a lot of care to try and understand what I was going for. And uh, she's very game for virtually anything. Yeah. She's really um, she's really great that way. You know, you tell her, no, no, just this way. This is what I'm trying. And she, like, you know, she soaks it in. She takes the note. Yeah. And she's not stubborn about anything. And, you, and, you know, she just gives you what you ask for. And uh, we did a lot of rehearsals and a lot of prep. Um, and... You know, we both love the rehearsal process, and and we used to be in the same acting class together, so we had a sort of a shorthand um, kind of uh, way to convey ideas back and forth, and, you know, we were sort of on the page about what kind of exercises we could do to get us there. And she ended up winning three Best Actress awards for uh, that role, and she did better, (laughs) better on the festival circuit than I did. Yeah, well, I feel like she really put herself in that role. Or I, she I threw herself that. in yeah. both feet. Yeah, and uh, she's gotten a lot of really good feedback, especially for the final scene. 
Oh, if anybody's curious, it's on Amazon.com, so you can watch it uh, both in the USA and in the UK. You can just go on there. If you have Amazon Prime, it'll be free to watch. And uh, that's how you'll see all the stuff that we're talking about. Um, yeah. yeah, Casey's great. She's she's just so gung-ho about everything. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that a lot about the movie. The cinematography, I also just wanted to mention really quick. So for uh, the people listening to the podcast, the way that I have this lit is I have uh, I have two lights. I have a, an LED strip on a stand that was not made for an LED strip. And I also have a desk lamp. So I just wanted to let indie filmmakers know that good cinematography is not out of their uh it's not out of their budget it can be done do you uh, do you have any comments on that like low budget making well, something uh for jimbo we st- i actually spent real money well, making that film yeah. you know i had a uh i had a director of photography and he had his his own crew of four other guys grip and electric and um you know the, the movie cost a lot because we were shooting out of town so i had to uh I had to put everybody up in a hotel and stuff. But, yeah, he brought all his, his A-team and his gear, and, uh, you know, he, he included all the lights and, and uh, grip and electric, in the pr- and including the transportation to get it all up to Peekskill where we shot it. Yeah. He included that all in the package, so it just made everything very easy. And um, All those guys were from SVA. This, uh, no, 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 wait, sorry. They were from New York Film Academy. Okay. And they had a shorthand together. You know, when he told me this is who I want on my team, I'm like, okay, great. And so they were all able to sort of work like a well-oiled machine, that whole um, thing. He practically crewed the entire thing for me. I, I, I got um, – I think I brought in my own sound guy, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure. I think there were one or two others, but I can't – it's been a few years since we've done this. What are they saying on the – my stepbrother Podcast. was saying that uh, he was like, I need to get some mason jars for my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, a nice touch, you know? Yeah. It's fun. For the um, listeners, I, I this is like how casual it is. I'll just explain like, oh, hey, we get to interact with uh, this kind of technology. Because I think a lot of the people that would be into this kind of collaborative experience like you were talking about, but also just projects that involve needing to research gear and what to get. Um, I think I think the listeners that I will attract will probably be interested in that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. I don't know that much about the gear. I know he used a, um, a Ronin, which is like a kind of a steady cam type of rig. Mm-hmm. Um, he was like, look, we can do, you know, we can, I, I want Dolly tracks, but what I really want is the Ronin. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm already spending all this money. Let's, yeah. you know, I'll, I, whatever you need, I'll just throw money at it. Yeah, sure. You want a Ronin? Let's get a Ronin. Cause I wanted it to look good, yeah. you know? And it was, you know, I think it's important for actors who don't have a lot of material for their reel to create content. It's really crucial. If you're trying to break in and you're not getting the roles by someone else giving you the roles, yeah, give yourself the role, man. Like, just write something or have somebody write something for you. Assemble a crew. and Or not. Just do it on the cheap. I mean, look, we have high-def cameras in our phones some some people have 4k ability on their phone most people i have an old phone so i I can't shoot 4k on my phone but you know there's the ability to to tell a good story just with your iphone um steven soderbergh has moved to iphoneography filmmaking and he says he's not going back last i heard he said he's not going back he shot that uh that horror film what was it called the one set in the in the uh, insane asylum, oh, Soderbergh, um, whatever it's called. Like, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah, so. Um, yeah. And then, you know, if you ever watch Tangerine, that was shot on iPhone. Now, they, they decked it out with all kinds of extras, but sure. it's still the method of capture is an iPhone. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't, it, it can cost you virtually nothing to make a film these days. Yeah. And if it gives you something for your reel and you're an actor and you need stuff for your reel, then why not do it? And if you don't know how to write, get somebody, find a friend who knows how to write. Absolutely. Yeah. It's important. So that's, I mean, that was our goal in making Jimbo. And fortunately, you know, it's, it found some fans. It's also got an enemy or two. Um, You know, people make assumptions sometimes about a film without watching it. What, uh, what criticism of uh, Jimbo did they have that, um, so these are people who hadn't seen it, you said? Yeah, I have a friend oh, who weird. who I've known for many years. Yeah. We'll, we'll just say decades. I don't want to give away my age, but I'm a kind of an old guy. Um, but um, without watching it, now she says she has PTSD from other stuff that may be similar to w- some of what's happening in the film, but she's like very, very angry 
about the film that it starts with the woman in the basement, you mm -hmm. know, trapped by this guy, and she says it's part of the problem. I'm like, there's no way you could watch this film and come away thinking that he's that what Norm is doing is going to be admirable to anybody. Yeah, because of what happens to him, <laughs> there's no way. There's no way, and that's you know, and he doesn't. I mean. Should I? Yeah, should I say? Yeah, he doesn't win. He doesn't win. He doesn't get away with anything. But and you don't root for him is the nice thing. You've made no, you a don't. very hateable uh, villain. Actually, you know another villain that I really enjoyed in a movie. I just wanted to say, or antagonist, or mm -hmm. even protagonist, a character that I really liked was uh, <laughs> Will Myers as Ben in uh, uh, Family Values. His sort of uh, he's the oh guy yeah, black Will suit with the lighter. Oh, and, uh, that kid is on fire. Yeah, his career is cooking. He's only. He was eight. He had just turned eighteen when we made Family Values. Yeah, and um, he's so he's nineteen now. He's now got a recurring role on some network show. I don't know. I'd have to look it up on IMDb. Somebody told me he's got a recurring role on yeah. a network show. I know that he's flying back and forth from West Coast to East Coast because he's so busy. That kid, I I feel very fortunate to have gotten him for my film because he's. I have a feeling you're gonna hear a lot from him. He's he's so talented so raw um will he was myers, great right? will will myers yeah okay yeah he uh, he did a great job i really um i liked his presentation and i all like the styling was really good in the movie so there was the wednesday adam dress with the rabbits on it and there was what will was wearing which was the the all black suit and then the way it was lit you could see the shiny um material on the tie and when he pulled out the when he pulled out this lighter it's a uh, golden lighter, and I really like the way it looks on, or in frame, rather. Huh. The, the image you create, I don't know if you thought about it, but gold lighter with the black suit, like, it looked really good together. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, I, I feel like I ought to, um, we just sort of jumped into talking about family values, but maybe I should tell a little something about the film? I think you should. Okay, um, it's, yeah. listeners, thank you for joining us for Zed's Not Dead. Experiencing a few technical difficulties, and we'll be back with you momentarily. Take this moment to light up or take a sip of whatever it is that your favorite beverage that you may have in front of you. Um, uh, give a peck on the cheek to your loved one. Sure. All right. We're golden. Okay. Family Values is a sick and twisted little film. It is. Of seven minutes in length. That is... Um, it's basically about a, fa a family patriarch, i.e. the dad slash husband, who has uh, recently died, and the film opens with uh, the, the family coming back from the funeral home. They go into the home, and then um, they start talking about some uncomfortable truths about dad, and it gets real heated real quick and comes to a powerfully punch-packed, finale that will leave you shocked possibly yeah is that uh, fair to say the, no that is fair to say like the the whole thought or the biggest thing that i noticed in the movie was that you have a certain way of using dialogue and i'm a, I'm a big fan of it like we uh we we're talking about storytelling in a way to where you can show the audience things and not have to tell them directly i guess like you seem like someone who understands subtext pretty well when writing if i had to take a guess i, I hope so uh, what what are your thoughts on uh, like storytelling storytelling elements? Do you have any favorites in particular, like Sto the English majors out there? That's what I used storytelling to do. elements. Yeah, like uh, foreshadowings, one parallels or another. Uh, I'm trying to think uh, exposition. I'm very into like what what element do you think uh, you really focus on when writing, or is there one, or do you just try well, to? I don't. I try not to think about the elements, but when it comes to exposition, I think the best thing you can do is hide it. Okay. You know, as best you can. Like nobody, you know, nobody wants to hear like a paragraph long backstory that you need yeah. in order to understand what's going on now. It's like a, it's and it's sort of a, a tricky thing to sort of work that into a dialogue just just before you need like the little drips and drabs of information just before you need it. Yeah. Like, you know, I we didn't. I could have started family values in the house and then have them saying. You know, oh, sucks that dad died. But that's like really lumpy and like it's kind of like who would speak like that because they all know the score. They're all in the same situation so that no one in the room would need to say that. So the way to do that exposition of someone just died is 
that one shot of them walking in front of the funeral home. I mean, yeah. even that, I felt like, oh, it's a little heavy-handed to see that as, you know, them walking under a sign that says funeral home. But, you know, I was able to throw some other stuff in there that, that I think spoke to character. Like, you, you'll notice that the, the character that Will played uh, is walking sort of behind the rest of the family, and he's wearing sneakers, not dress shoes. So right away, you get an idea of like something about him, about his character that he, you know, holds himself aloof. He's a little casual about things. So you, you should, and that's ex, you know all that's exposition, but it's done without a clunky paragraph, you know, tacked on the front of things. Oh, I, but I'm a rebel, you know, you, you know, Dad may have died, but I don't, you know, like you just you, you gotta you gotta make it subtle. Yeah, and so. That's the tricky thing. I think a lot, a lot of writers will. I think a lot of writers will do their first pass, and it'll have a lot of exposition and a lot of scenes that don't go anywhere. You know, you want your scene to sort of do something, and if it's not, then you could probably jettison it if it's not yeah. moving the story forward. Even things like going, you know, they left, you know, the house and they went to the car and they let, you know, got out of the car and then they were in the, and then they went to the office building. All that in between stuff, you can literally go door to door and snap that out, and you know, it's it's all like unnecessary stuff. It, it, I try to keep my script. To answer your question in short, I try to keep my scripts as lean and terse as possible, cool. and just try and um, only give the the most sort of the least amount of information needed. But you know, now lately, I've been looking at some other filmmakers like. Um, you know, we were talking about Linklater before the podcast opened. Yeah, you had a fantastic and, story about him. Yeah, I'll tell I'll tell that. Yeah. But let me make this point. Between Linklater and also John, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of John Cassavetes. No, who's that? Oh, he's an actor's director. Oh, my God. He made so many good films. Um, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, uh, A Woman Under the Influence, Husbands, Faces. Very, he's like the 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 sort of paragon model of independent filmmaker. He's the guy you, you, you kind of, you, I mean, you, he's a great filmmaker and he, yeah. and he was an actor. Um, and, uh, so he knows how to work with actors. So he would, he would make his, his, um, his crews just sort of follow the action, yeah, which is insane from a filmmaking point of view. You, you know, usually what you want to do is you want to set up your show. Okay, we're going to set the camera. And most direct, 99% of the directors, we're going to set the camera here, and you're going to be in close-up, so you can't move, you know, further than, you know, this much. Yeah. And uh, da, 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 da. No, he would be like, no, let the actors go wherever they want. You, it's your job as a camera guy to figure it out, you know. So, um, he had a much looser style of, of dialogue and storytelling, and so did so does Link, Linklater will craft his dialogue more but um, there's still a lot of rambling that doesn't necessarily drive the story forward, but it's always interesting, Yeah, which I kind of like. And so I'm starting to, you know, explore some of that a little bit, that sort of looser feel, kind of fly on the wall of life uh, dialogue. But the being terse and, and to the point is sort of in my nature, so it's sort of a hard muscle for me to to do that thing yeah. of just letting people sort of live in the frame. It, it, every you know, ounce of me wants to go, no, let's get, you know, let's get to the dialogue that means something. Yeah. But I think there's something beautiful about just sort of watching human behavior unfold. Absolutely. Um, so, and in sort of in pursuit of that, I've been sort of watching people a little more in a different kind of open way lately. Um, taking a series of photographs and videos mostly, I guess, called hum hashtag human behavior that I'm posting on my Insta. And yeah. uh, and just sort of like, you just, you know, if you, you're really good at this. You pay attention to people and you learn stuff about people. I've noticed this about you, which is you're really people focused and you, you have this way of like figuring out somebody's essence pretty quickly. I and that's cool. That. Oh, thank you, man. I, um, I just, I think it's important to, this is going to sound really cheesy, but I, I really give everyone a chance that I think uh, deserves it, I guess, if that makes sense. Like in terms of interacting with people and figuring out about these collaborations. And I, I like going to meetup groups where you can uh, learn details about people and you can almost, I don't want to say sift through the people you do and don't want to work with, but uh, yeah, I, I think I pride myself on just sort of feeling people out um, and, uh, you know, give, giving them uh 
what's the uh, the best expression for that is a uh, benefit of the doubt, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a generous way to approach life. Yeah, I try, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interest in New York City, and I I completely understand it. It's a really interesting place to live. I've you've seen it change over the years, probably. Yeah. Because uh, what you moved uh, here in 1983, I think. I, no, no, no. I'm not that old. Uh, I mean, I am that old, but I didn't move here in '83. I moved here in '94. Oh, okay. And so it was just prior to Giuliani's cleanup. And uh, I was living in the East Village, 11th and 1st. So it was still pretty gritty over there. Yeah. It wasn't as gritty as it used to be before that, but it was still a little bit, you know, a little sketchy. A little sketchy. Yeah. And well, Times Square still had, you know, the porn palaces and yeah, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What they recreated on uh, the Deuce when we were on it. That's right. We were both extras on the Deuce. Yes. Which is how we met. Absolutely. I, uh, well, I'd, I'd mentioned that uh, the idea of extra being an extra or a background actor um, on my last podcast is a, like a means of communication and, uh, like we're saying, networking, like a, a way of meeting people and seeing who you want to collaborate with. And uh, I don't know. I, I feel like it's untapped resource. Or maybe it's tapped. Who knows? I, I don't know. It's, you know, obviously, as an actor, I'd rather be a principal, but... I would rather be an extra than have a day spent at home doing nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, it's time on set, and yeah. I love it. You know, it's like I remember saying out loud to myself on the set of The Deuce, is like, this is like, this couldn't be better unless I were a principal. This yeah. is this is Evan Lee. For the listeners, uh, something that I've experienced while putting this podcast together, which has been a lot of fun, is just editing it and seeing how you can present things to uh, people. Like I liked some of the music that you had in the films, but I also really liked uh, a lot of like the text and sort of the titles that you used. Um, do you have any particular influences when it comes to like how to present a film? Like when it comes to say things like text and design, hmm. or marketing, I guess uh, for lack I'm of a better term. Terrible at marketing. Oh, okay. I I can't make a dime with my films. I would love to. Uh, I need to figure it out or I need to partner with somebody who knows how to do it. Um, I think I'm a good filmmaker. I'm not as good as I'd like to be because my technicals are not great. Like I, uh, But, you know, I hope to one day be working at the level where I don't have to understand the technicals. I can hire people who do. I'm, I'm which, in the same boat, yeah. Which that's kind of what happened on Jimbo. I just threw money at it until I had enough experts around me that I could sort of focus on what I needed to focus on, which was mm -hmm. directing my myself and my co-star and i mean directing you know basically directing the film and being an actor yeah and i didn't have to think about camera i mean i would look behind the camera well you know he would check with me is this going to be okay what do you think yeah. of this no, i don't think i don't like the camera placement there and you know whatever but you know? but mostly i could shoulder all this stuff on these people who were professionals mm -hmm. and you know make decisions where need be but it was probably an 80-20 load, 80% uh, they would take, and then the last 20% I would, you know, weigh in. Yeah. And same went with the music. I had a great musical score from Kevin Delaney, who, um, he's a first-time musician. It's a rock and roll heavy metal score. He's Okay. He, did you notice the score at all? I did. It was for, um, I want to say Jimbo, right? Jimbo, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah Jimbo. exactly. The, um, yeah, there was guitar at the end, and it was, uh, oh, it was a guitar. There's it was a fitting score. heavy metal music throughout the whole thing. If you yeah. didn't notice it, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's because the, that setting mood and you know, like yeah, turned. and that's I think kind of like what I was talking about. You found this way to present it, or somebody in the creative process found a way to present it that. Uh, it was just pleasing, you know, after uh, the day of, like, I, I was kind of rushing around, and I, I had a pretty busy day beforehand, mm. but as soon as I started setting up for this, it just, like, um, there was stress to it, you know, like, oh, i got to put the table in here or there mm. or whatever, but now that I'm in the moment, I, you know, I don't I don't regret setting up projects. I think there's definitely a certain magic to just getting started on something. Like, um, you said sometimes you worry about the technicals, but other times you have to just push forward and see something get created, I guess. Yeah, well, the just nice... to start is the important part. The nice thing about having a budget is you can spend money to hire people who know what the heck they're doing. Right. And that way you don't have to worry about stuff that you don't want to worry about. I mean, you know, do you, Woody Allen puts himself in films all the time. Do you think he's he's I mean, he he he's got he's surrounded by professionals who he can lean on. And you know, I, I mean any director, let's not go into Woody Allen because honestly people you know, have their feelings about him. But any yeah. director who puts himself in his films is the point I'm trying to make. Um, 
you know, the more you can offload to your crew, the, the better. And that just, you know, money buys that. So I'm terrible at raising money. I, I financed Jimbo out of my own pockets, which was probably not the smartest thing to do, but it was the e most expedient. It was just easy. It was like, okay, I have the money. I'll just spend it. I, I don't really want to put a bunch of months into begging. So you started asking about Requiem, and uh, I'll just briefly go into that. I, you know, I think that these are films that people could watch in, you know, in, in a few minutes' time and uh, get some kind of enjoyment out of them. Requiem is, and Fool's Parade. I want to talk about them both. So Fool's Parade uh, came first. Fool's Parade was a music video that I shot with an iPhone 4 or 4S, I think. And um, I shot it with, with the phone mm -hmm. and uh, edited it traditionally and then um, exported the final video uh, pre-treatment. And I'll explain what pre-treatment means in just a second. The, the edited video came out to 5,016 frames of video, which then were exported as 5,016 stills still frames mm -hmm. and then each of those still frames was passed through an app called phototropodelic in the in the iphone it's a program that's made for stills mm -hmm. but i figured out a way to sort of you know game it so that i could make it work for video by doing frame by frame yeah you were creating frames and yeah and then just reassembled all those treated frames i had to you know sort of treat each one individually with slides and levers and and then reassemble it as moving video and then superimpose that back onto the 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 untreated video. So it has a sort of sort of trippy, not quite in the cartoon world look and not quite in the real world look. Yeah. It kinda looks like sort of if anybody's ever seen the Peter Max paintings or like the yellow submarine kind of look. It's very sort of sixties trippy, yeah. highly colorful with like explosions of stripes and stars and and different colors and stuff and yeah um i think the artist kind of hated getting all the into all those crazy costumes and stuff because he's it, 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 it he didn't he just didn't love it i i mean i heard him say that he didn't love it but it ended up doing pretty well for him he got um i think sixteen thousand hits on youtube so you know maybe the process wasn't fun for him but i think the product turned out pretty good yeah, and, and it's just cra it's just crazy looking. If you have epilepsy or anything that's triggered by flashing lights, don't watch it. But yeah. otherwise, you'd be fine. And then Requiem is um, sort of done as a like almost like a black and white comic strip, uh, sort of frame by frame. Sort of, um, it feels like moving frames of a black and white comic, basically. Yeah, it does. And it's very angst-driven, sort of self-confession of a guy who's a lot like me, but he's a lot more cynical than I am. Yeah. It's like cynical almost to a comical degree. That was kind of what I was talking about when I had mentioned uh, the idea of living in New York over a course of years. Can it, it, I think it has an effect on like a lot of the residents, like the people who move here and then it sort of uh, like runs them sure. down, I guess, in a, in a sense. What do you think about the home ec thing that I mentioned earlier? So the idea that people, um, the definition of home ec is to basically be able to not only cook, but do things that upkeep your home and sort of like your property. Like it's almost seen as like a homestead type thing to where, for instance, you could wash your shirt in like the sink if you needed to, and you can get st wine stains out. Um, do you know how to do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So did you use a washboard back in Idaho? Uh, sometimes I'd use Ever? the washboard. Yeah, you yeah. did? Mm-hmm. Really? Like Western style? No, like no, no. Oh, shit. Using washboard. Washboard. Uh, no, no. I have too many teeth for that. <laughs> um, no, it wasn't the washboard. Uh, I can make fun because I'm from Texas. Exactly. It's okay. We're both like, you know, anyway. Yeah, both out of our element. Yeah. Both in the big uh, city. But um, there's two hicks in two, the big city. Two hicks in the big city. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be uh, that's gonna be my next podcast. <laughs> uh, no, I'm... So what I was meaning to say earlier about home ec is it's the ability to keep up your sort of just like to be able to keep up your environment, I guess is the best way to say it. So like I mentioned, the roommates thing, I'm not throwing anyone under the bus. I'm just saying that being able to uh, know when to wash dishes and when to pay taxes and the stuff people complain they don't learn in school, I think is uh, could be interesting topics for uh, my podcast. So I think home ec is one of those topics if you uh, – my, my high school had home ec classes. Did yours not? Uh, my middle school had it, but I think they got rid of it by high school. Huh. 
Yeah, and it's it's a free. And it was usually mostly like girls and the one or two guys that wanted to meet the girls, right? Yeah, smart, the really smart guys who were like, I get it. I know, I know what those are. Yeah, I never took the home ec classes. I'm uh, I can, I know how to cook. Uh, I'm not a good cleaner. Oh yeah, we all. I'm kind. I'm somewhere between like. Um, Oscar from The Odd Couple and mm-hmm. Hoarders, you know, yeah. about to be buried alive. <laughs> Somewhere in that range. Uh, yeah, Hoarders is a weird one. Um, just some of the situations you can get into with hoarding, like, oh, man, I mean, I'm talking about, like, police getting called and, like, yeah. losing control and pest control. Right, with like, the dead cats and the turds all <laughs> over the place and stuff like that. It's, uh, <laughs> it's weird, though. It's, the statistic was more common than I... Uh, thought it would be though i, I don't yeah. know what the exact number was but when i was listening to minimalist podcast i was a uh, thing i learned what do you think that comes from that sort of need to hoard oh it's um there was a need behind it it was a, a shortage i guess so you might um like a poverty mentality yeah exactly so you some people might talk about the way say their grandparents or like the uh depression era people would mm-hmm. uh just be frugal with things whether that was taking extra sugar packets that were right, available right, right. coffee tables or if it was um diluting their meat with like oatmeal or rice or i've done that with quinoa um, oh yeah but so what that's the idea behind like hamburger helper uh, yeah right? <laughs> sell people, exactly what it is, right? uh, you know sell them something that's really um inexpensive yet it would be tasty to a wide palate i think yeah. mm-hmm. i think uh, the palate thing's interesting something else i figured out about food is that um with preservatives and the way a lot of prepackaged foods like we said the foods in the center of the grocery store Right. It's yeah, it's yeah. the Michael Pollan thing where you're talking about where it's the fresh food is all on the outside aisles. Yeah, and like that, the fruits, the vegetables yeah. and the meats and the dairy. That's so true. That's all the real food and everything in the center is in a box and has been sitting per, you know, preserved by chemicals in the center of the grocery store Absolutely. for whoever knows how long. Um, yeah. No. That's what you mean. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Like the produce aisle I think is very underrated and it's sad to see a lot of stuff go to waste. Um I know it's not preserved. I'd rather eat it that way, but it's it's sad that the reason why that's hard to store is because it could go to waste, and then, you know, nobody likes that when they're running, like, a grocery store. Nobody likes that when they're running a restaurant or, you know. I, th- I think when, you know, in the 50s or whenever it was, in the 40s, 50s, when they started figuring out, oh, we can can stuff and preserve it, and it can yep. be, like, fine for a long, long, long time, I think that was a huge breakthrough. But then somewhere that packaging of food became like this weird science mm-hmm. where now they you know now they can put bacon in an unrefrigerated box that just sits in, in a, on a shelf it's, to me that's just so weird it's like you can just have meat that's unrefrigerated and it can live on the shelves forever it's just so strange i i don't know anything with like 16 letters in the ingredient is probably not going to be that good for you i think like the the hydrogenated oils and like peanut butter or something that I've I uh, used to be really addicted to, but now I um now I feel better off without it. I uh, like have you ever tried um the the ground almond butter or the ground peanut sure. butter? I like almond butter a lot. Yeah, yeah. What, do you, what do you think of the the texture when not a lot of it's added? It's literally just ground peanuts. The Thai food does it really well, I think. Oh, you like the chunky? I'm a more of a smooth guy. Yeah, right. so you would you probably would be more into like tahini and stuff like that. I don't like tahinis to, so much. I like almond. I like almond butter. Almond butter's nice. Yeah. Um, much more than peanut butter. Well, peanut butter is interesting because, like I said, the wide range is like everything from the chunky unsweetened with separation in it of oils mm. and uh, the nut uh, sort of bits there. But also, um, you can get it to the super sugary like Reese's peanut butter cups, and in the middle you have what we know as Jif and Skippy and Peter Pan and those kind of products, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. When you say Jif, you know what that reminds me of is uh, the Mandela effect. Were we talking oh, about that on the Deuce? Uh, we might have, but for the listeners, I'm sure a lot of people know about the Mandela effect. Um, what do you think of the Barons? Like, oh, let's explain it. To, then, yes. Well, yeah. okay. okay. So how would you explain the Mandela effect? Okay. First of all, I got to say what triggered it. Jif. Some people remember that there used to be a peanut butter named Jiffy. Which there apparently never was. Do you, rem- I, listeners? Do you remember a Jiffy peanut butter? Yeah, do they? I think it's just a. I think it's just a mashup between Skippy peanut butter and Jif is really what's going on. Um, but some people think that there's a Jiffy peanut butter, 
And then the idea behind the Mandela effect is that some, I guess largely people think it's due to the experiments at CERN. CERN, yes, that's that, part of it. A lot of people think that they sort of opened up some kind of black hole that now there's like other um, parallel universes that are impinging on ours. And yeah. so so all these things that we think we know about our known universe have suddenly changed. For instance, used to be a jiffy. I know there was. I remember it when I was a kid. But now it's not here. Everywhere I look on the web and, and in person, uh, it's only jiff or skippy, but there's yeah. no jiffy. Or the Berenstain. Berenstain Berenstain. Berenstain Bears is what most people remember. It's the difference of A and E. Also, uh, the Mandela effect itself, this is true. One of the most interesting things that I learned about that is that um, there's – okay, so for the listeners, the reason why (laughs) it's called – weird. No, it's all good. Yeah, no, no, it's such a weird story. Go ahead, yeah, yeah. and I'll help where I can. Yeah, thank you, thank you. The Mandela effect was named after Nelson Mandela. We asked the uh, listeners – when did mandela die we want to know what you think so So most people think most people think that it a lot of people think a lot of people think that it was in i believe 89 something like that That maybe 93 no it was 89 it was while he was in prison prison, as far as i know i'm willing to admit i'm wrong on that if i look at the year but yeah right yeah so it was the idea that he died while he was a political prisoner or i guess he was demonstrating so he became a prisoner um, but later on, went to be the president of South Africa in 1983. So the problem with the he was freed. He became the leader of South Africa. Yes. And there are a lot of people in the world who think, "What? What are you talking about?" No, I remember him dying back in prison in '89 or exactly. whatever that and was. And then he uh, he died in 2011, as far as I know. Um, was it 2011? Okay. Yeah, as far as I know, I'll look it up. But I'm. Um, the, Much later than eighty nine, yeah, whatever exactly. the case is. Exactly. Yeah. So now there's these people that think that that the world is that the, our reality is slipping. Exactly. Be, so because of another, the Mandela effect. Yeah, where we end up living in a different sort of timeline, like an alternate timeline, but we have the memory from the old one. Another one. That, and there's dozens and dozens of these. My, dozens. My new favorite one is Jaws in James Bond. Have you heard that one yet? Oh yeah, with the yes. The braces. Go ahead. So for the listeners, um, there's one of the Mandela effects that's really popular that I love because I'm a huge 007 fan, particularly the old ones. So in the Roger Moore one. Who's your favorite? Uh, I'm going to say Connery or there also George Lanzerbury is really good. Good man. Um, Sean Connery. Yeah, uh, Connery's great. Um, but anywho, Roger Moore, rest in peace, uh, was in one called. Uh, it was the one in space, right? It was Moonraker, yeah. Moonraker. So, yeah, not to right. be confused with Spy Who Loved Me, that first introduces Jaws. That was 77, I want to say. So Moonraker, I think, was 81, if I remember right. Okay. Like you're you're more ahead on your 007 than I am. Yeah, I like, I like remembering new things. So in the film Moonraker, yes. Jaws, towards the end, meets a woman, and he smiles, and you think that she's going to be horrified because of his uh, metal mouth. However, she smiles, and she has braces, or so we thought. So we thought. Until the Mandela effect. Yes, and I think a lot of this has to do when things get released on DVD. People see it for the first time in 20 years, and they're just like, yo, it had this. They go onto Reddit, and they're like, this right. is this is the work of uh, alternate dimensions, you know? Right. Okay, let's uh, throw another couple out there. There's um, some Star Wars ones. Hang on. What are those? What does is, what is, uh, um, Darth Vader say to Luke? To let him know the nature of their actual relationship. What does he say? No, I am your father. But we thought he said, <laughs> Luke, Luke, I am your father. Every, almost everybody remembers him saying, Luke, I am your father. But well, he never says it that It was way. to the point where people made references to that. Like in Toy Story 2, I think they make a reference to yeah. that. And uh, several cartoons, I'm sure like some of the Cartoon Network and uh, Nickelodeon shows that I grew up with, probably made references to that. Um yeah, it's and weird. C3PO, I remembered him having all gold parts, but apparently in this new universe, if you believe in the Mandela effect, in this new universe, he has one silver leg. Exactly. Is it a conspiracy th- done by the CERN researchers accidentally or on purpose? Or is it just people misremembering shit? When you look at Mandela effect on Wikipedia, as far as I know, it attributes it to false memory and obviously that's yeah. just wikipedia versus sure. uh whatever but i think enough people have just decided like 
what on earth? Although it's fun. I enjoy conspiracy yeah. theories from a pondering, like almost philosophy class type standpoint where you're really thinking these things through. It's a it's a big YouTube rabbit hole you can dive into if you want to. You can yeah. be lost for days searching into That's the Mandela my effect. Of binge watching. Like I don't really watch it's so funny. Yeah, I don't really stream shows. I just watch stupid you? YouTube. <laughs> What's your what's your favorite kind of stuff to watch on YouTube? Uh, Thoughty Two is amazing on YouTube. What is it? Thoughty Two. So it's spelled T H O U. It's spelled like thought. T H O U G H T Y. Yep. And then two. Then yeah. Then the the number two. Okay. So he uh, makes informational videos. It's really interesting. He's a uh, he's just a guy who likes a lot of fun facts. So he puts them out there, and they're interesting videos. Um, trying to think of another really good one chris chan is interesting he's a skateboarder he uh the two that i saw that were popular from him were uh there's one in barcelona where he gets his camera stuff stolen so he has like a uh the same setup basically here like he has a nice camera lens he's a podcaster and, yeah yeah okay or uh no sorry he's a vlogger so chris Chan's vlogger. A, a skateboarding okay. vlogger so he got that stolen in barcelona like that type of setup mm-hmm. and then so that was a video uh he finishes that on his phone like you were saying before you can mm-hmm. use your phone yeah uh, for stuff um and then for uh, the second video, he – oh, yeah, yeah. So this is just something I th- thought was interesting. I'll put this in the show notes or I'll put this in, like, the description of the video. But I really recommend watching a video by Chris Chan where he and a couple friends bring a rail to the L.A. River. It's a custom-built rail for grinding on it. So it has two ends welded onto it. And they have to lure this thing into the L.A. River and watch out for, like, security. And they have to watch out for this, like, train. And they have to go through all these fences. They do that. They drop this rail in it. They prop it up. And then Chris Chan has to go on one end of the L.A. River. You know how it's, like, scooped like that? Okay. So he has to go down one end of it, do an ollie, and then grind across the L.A. River. Uh And he messes up, uh, like, one of the first ones. And when he gets out of the water, there's just these, like, parasites on him or these, like, just these bugs. (laughs) It's funny, yeah, it's nasty. crazy. It's a great video though. It, it so kind of weird. exposes uh, urban decay. Like Urbex is good for that. This is Dan Bell is another great YouTuber. I'll put his um, uh, I'll put his information in the show notes. Mm. I feel like you'd be interested in urban exploration. You seem like someone who would uh, at least watch videos about urban that. exploration. What is that exactly? That's the idea that you're exploring parts of cities that were at one point inhabited but now are not. So this can be abandoned houses, oh, okay. motels, theme parks. I'm trying to think uh, malls. Yeah, it's super There's that subway stop at the end of the 6, the south end of yeah, the 6 line. Um, that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Urban exploration is very interesting because yeah. it's people taking photographs in abandoned places. I did a little bit of it in Woodstock, New York on uh, the hike for, I think it's Overlook Mountain. There is an abandoned hotel from the 1920s there. And it's, uh, I'll have to show you photos of it, but it's nothing but decay now. Mm-hmm. But it's a very interesting like skeleton, sort of ruin of this old uh, uh, hotel that used to stand there. Yeah? Yeah. That's cool. You know, there's a lot of cool abandoned spaces. Um, whenever I take the LIRR, it seems like right as you leave the city, there's all these like bombed out buildings that are covered in graffiti. And I just think, man, that would just make such a cool place to shoot a film. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of that stuff. And you know, for a while back in the back in the day, um, I was trying to do. I would start. I do a lot of experiments where I'll start an idea. Like Requiem was an experiment that right, I just yeah. didn't finish. Basically, I mean, I I did a few things, uh, you know, with it. But <clears throat> I try a lot of different experiments, and one of them was to try and um, do a film where it's a gu- it's a guy, and everywhere he is in New York City, there's no one around. So I would shoot these little snippets of self like you know in a situation like in central park but there was no one around yeah and i just thought to make like a whole film of like one or two people one or two or three people you know just in the city and there's never any other people in it and then then write some kind of story weird story around that idea yeah um i i just want to mention earlier i definitely noticed uh when you used casey black again it was cool to see this sort of um you're talking about her appearance in Requiem yeah, 3. It, yeah, it was, it was cool to see her in that role because uh, she's sort of that beacon of hope at the end of it where he's like, oh, if I could just, you know, meet the right person at a bar. And it becomes this, like, it becomes a, a small patch on, like, a larger problem, I guess it seemed like. Yeah, he pin, he momentarily pins some hope on her and then abandons hope. Yeah, uh, exactly. Sort of prematurely. Yeah, and it's... <laughs> he's, he's a yeah. sad guy. He's, he's, a lot, he's only just a little sadder than I am, actually, <laughs> in real life. <laughs> So was it a, like a personal project when you thought of it? The Requiem thing yeah, or yeah. the, or the Requiem, other thing? Yeah. 
you know, it just started as a as a, an, a, an experiment with phone tech with you know, iPhoneography technique and the, like the editing you were talking about. Yeah, I well, I just yeah. like I just di- I just shot my commute home basically, and then later I looked at it and I was like, oh wait, I could just write a quick monologue over this, and then I wrote and recorded a monologue over it and slapped it in there, and that was it was like done in a day. Then I was like, oh, well, how can I, you know, how can I make more on the same kind of theme using that same kind of very cynical, burned out, you know, pessimistic character, which is not far from who I am, but he's more so than I am. Maybe played up for that that particular film. Yeah, it's life heightened, as yeah. most films, it, if not are, then ought to, if not ought to be, then usually are. Yeah, no, I noticed that. Films are highly personal projects where you can, uh, you can do a lot with it, depending on how much freedom you have. But um, you know, I was watching some uh, some documentaries and stuff about filmmaking just in the last twenty four hours or so. There's um, and also we're talking about YouTube channels. Uh, yeah, we film were. Courage has a lot of really good information if you're a screenwriter sure. or a filmmaker or whatever, because it, it's like they get a lot of they get a lot of accomplished filmmakers to talk about their craft, and uh, you can I think you can learn a lot from from their advice. Um, it's a it's a great YouTube channel for filmmakers. I one of the what was the name ones. on it again? Film Courage. Film Courage, cool. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, I'll, I'll also put that in the description. Oh, cool. Yeah, great. Yeah, they're great. And then um, I was watching a a documentary called Kingdom Come, which is about this guy who's trying to make this movie, uh, something Kingdom. I forget the name of the film. He's tr- it's a documentary follow where they're wa- they're watching as this guy tries to get his film financed and off the ground and shot and oh, okay. in a, and it's it's like hard and breaking almost every step of the way which is like it, it but it's also very eye-opening like okay are you sure you want to be a filmmaker yeah. because this is what you're gonna be up against you know so that's a recommend i think for filmmakers you know it's also a warning i mean maybe if you're really gung-ho about filmmaking maybe don't watch it because it might discourage you yeah but he does. A, he ends up uh, getting a film made. Spoiler alert. Okay. Oh shit. Um, well, um, you know what that reminds me a lot of is uh, you ever seen, you've seen Ed Wood, right? I haven't. You know, I never did see Ed Wood. I would like to see Ed Wood. Oh, it's a good movie. It's uh, I, kn- I know about it. It's uh, the B movie King, and it's uh, what's his name? Uh, it's sort of they done as a comedy. Yeah, it's Depp playing that role. Johnny Depp. Yep. And he's uh, playing this. Cr- Maybe I did see it. I, rem- I if I haven't seen the whole thing, I know I've seen some of it. He's like off his rocker. It would. Yeah, I think he's like he, he would do anything to get a film made. Yep. There's yeah. A, there's a line where he calls one of the studios, and I, I love I love classic Hollywood, golden age Hollywood. Like some of mm-hmm. the way I've marketed this podcast is golden age references, I guess. Right. Like the like your logo is uh, very reminiscent mm-hmm. of silent film title cards. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. So just to have a, like a sense of style, I, I say that I want to create a product that's like really living and breathing with this podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a great idea. Living and breathing. But um, yeah, I um. The thing that I really love about Ed Wood is like just scenes where he'll call the studio and it's someone being that way, but in that time period, it was just funny because there's a, there's a part where um, he he shows his film to a studio and he's trying to get funding, and the guy on the phone tells him that is the worst film he's ever seen. And when he replies, he's like, "My next one's gonna be better," because <laughs> he has this mentality of there's like nowhere to go but up. Everybody's a critic, I guess. You know this, and this goes to another point that we were talking about earlier before the podcast, which is. In in some ways, um, success is sort of inarguable. Like if you if you made a film, even if like ninety nine percent of the people in the world think it's a piece of shit, the fact that you had an idea, you developed it, you got it cast, you got it crewed, you got it filmed, you got it edited, you got it out there, you win. Mm-hmm. In in my eyes, that's a win. Even if I hate your film, I have to admire your success in having gotten it made in the first place because it's 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 like it's like moving a mountain to get a film made. I mean, small ones, you know, small shorts shot on your iPhone, mm, a small hill maybe, but there's something sort of admirable about getting it done and getting it out there, even even if you're you know even if the film you've made is. Ed Wood's worst piece of shit. Yeah, it got made. Yeah, that's why people but are so those, fascinated by him. Those piles of shit ended up making a 
creating a guy who Hollywood would deem later to decide that he was worth making a movie about his about his <laughs> life. So like, <laughs> Ed Wood wins. It's almost like Tommy Wiseau in a way. Yeah. Tommy so of dude, the room. Dude, we played this drinking game for the room one time. Where, every time he says. Oh, so every time Denny gets on uh, a scene, let's see what else. I. Uh, oh, hello. What was his name? Oh, oh, hey, Mark. Yeah, oh, every hey, time Mark. he greets Mark. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was also. Um, Even was, that film, you know, yeah. as bad as it is, you oh, got to admire so interesting. it. Oh, man. Uh, the, the thing that we were always super fascinated about was uh, just like the timing, the editing, the splicing, like just it's so egregious and it commits so many faux pas that it's just a jarring experience. That what about that love scene? Mm. Oh, yeah. You get some you get some uh, Tommy Wiseau ass. <laughs> Bad choice. Man. Oh, it was should have just right flipped choice. who was who was on the top, man. Then you would have been fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then something really interesting was the experience seeing a uh, disaster artist in theaters because it was after right it is after I saw the room probably like twenty times. I think most people who have seen the disaster artist probably have not seen the room. Would yeah. you say that's fair? No, I've, I've met those people. Yeah, for sure. I think the disaster artist works whether you've seen the room or not. Though, yeah, I think it's a good movie. Yeah, it's really good, but it's it's a little extra added value if you've seen the room. Yeah, exactly. And if you haven't seen the room, it's worth seeking out because just so you'll the phenomenon. Just so you'll know. Yeah, it's sort of the, almost the same reason you might want to watch Human Centipede. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's like curiosity. It's like don't watch Human Centipede. Whatever you do, don't watch the Human Centipede. Yeah, it's watch uh, watch Jimbo instead. Human Centipede is like it's like that drunken I- that worst drunken idea you ever had for a movie that you you were sitting around with your college buddies and you're like, hey man, what I got it. Worst idea for a movie ever? You think that was good? Okay, check this one out. All right, I'm going to sew people together ass to mouth to make a human centipede. And then instead of waking up sober the next day and going, dude, you're out of your fucking mind, you go, no, let's, I love that idea. Let's actually go make that film, man. And somehow it got made. And now it is there on Netflix or wherever to, you know, assault your eyes if you should choose Absolutely. to seek it out. Absolutely. Uh, that it it sort of angers me that that ma- that movie is out there, and yet it buoys me up because it's like okay if that can get made then maybe there's hope for my little scripts. <laughs> Absolutely, you're entering the market in a, a time of need. Uh, yeah. um, we were talking oh, about I, we were talking about, about the room, but I had I had a movie that I I really liked that I wanted to run by you. Yeah. Or get your opinion. On. What what what's your opinion on Inglorious Bastards? I don't love it. Oh no! Yeah, I think I'm less of a fan of Quentin Tarantino than most people. Yeah, uh, especially most film people. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to say negative stuff about him because you know who knows? Maybe I'll have a chance to work with him, and I would probably like even even M Night Shyamalan, whose work I don't like. If I ended up working with him, I might find a new perspective on him. Yeah, even Kevin Smith, whose work I don't generally like. Tusk was good. The rest I could leave. But even, you know, if he were to, if either of those guys, any of those three guys were to call me and say, I will want you on your, on my film, I would find a new respect for them. You know, it's like, absolutely. and again, it goes back to that thing of if you're getting it made, I got to respect that. Well, especially for them, because the scale is, I don't want to say massive, but it's, it's a, a, I think it's a level that someone could learn to enjoy without getting too paranoid you know like a super celebrity it's not like you're suddenly beyonce you're just you're i guess i'm not beyonce that's true i've not, no one's ever accused me of being anything like Beyonce. oh sorry <laughs> listeners uh, i thought i was gonna get beyonce but apparently i've been conned yeah um, uh, sorry no, to but, disappoint you oh uh, yeah, yeah. Well, she was un- she was unavailable today oh really <laughs> I thought it was wide open schedule for her. I didn't yeah, know she was busy. she's not busy <laughs> ever with anything. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that's fair. Um, you mentioned the Smith thing. Something that, just in case anyone was curious, my travel YouTube blog is actually called Babyface Adventures as a uh, clerk's reference because there's the gangster uh, Babyface Bambino, or he's a mobster, like in that part of Jersey that it's set in. Okay. So, um, I, it was, it was, I guess like one of those examples, kind of like the Zed's not dead, uh, 
I think I think nods are fun to do, like for this kind of project at least. Well, going back to Tarantino, he does a lot of nods. That's yeah, that's yeah. his thing. Is he, you know, and he's never made a secret of that. He's like, yeah, I borrow, you know, he he borrows from. I mean, he he's a voracious yeah, movie yeah. consumer and always has been, uh, as far as I know. I mean, at least that's how he from was in the start age, from yeah. from working in the video shop or whatever. And I think he, you know, he takes a lot of what he sees and finds a new way to sort of work it in. To his own films and put his own um, individual spin on it that people just love. They, you know, most people can't get enough of it. And Glorious Pastors was good. I, you know, I just, I don't know. There's, you know, I think there's a lot of filmmakers out there who people consider like you must love this film or this filmmaker who I don't, who I don't agree with. Like, okay, I love, I love Stanley Kubrick's films. For some reason, the magic of two thousand one A Space Odyssey has somehow escaped me. We've we mentioned this. W- weren't you saying that the the biggest issue, or I think I was saying the series of images at the end? I just yeah, the whole thing is kind of just baffling to me. Like I, I I've had people explain it to me, and it's like I it, I look. I'm all for obtuse, it, you know. Sometimes, but that one is so it's so loose and obtuse. I just yeah. I feel like I'm I might be too thick-headed to get it in the way that people do. Either that or nobody gets it and everybody just sort of pretends to get it. I I wonder. Well, I'm glad you brought up this point cuz someone that I feel kind of that way about it's more his fans. Like I like him. I just there's a YouTuber named Anthony Fantano. So, Anthony Fantano, I'm pretty sure most of my listeners would know, but I guess just to give some perspective, he's a music critic, and he has a, a page called The Needle Drop is the channel, um, and it's a really good channel. If you want to hear about a well, like a well-formulated opinion, and it makes total sense why he, he interprets these albums the way he does, and then just gives an honest review, like, he's a good content creator. I really like Fantano and sort of what he's created, and like I said, almost like the lore behind him and the, the fans, like it's all very interesting. Mm. However, I will say the, the only issue I really have with Anthony Fantano fans, uh, to some regard, most aren't like this, but there's a certain subsection, a lot of them live in Seattle um, and North Idaho, and uh, they have this very strange uh, need to protect whatever he has praised, and they also would like to let you know why you shouldn't be a fan of what he's trashed that, just that makes sense. oh yeah i heard it no worries okay. but if that makes any sense so basically they will wait say that again um for anthony fantano fans my only issue with them is that they take as gospel what his opinion is on an album so if you say that you like an album he didn't like i've done this plenty of times people are like oh didn't you see the anthony fantano review you're not allowed to like that it's like it's a, a very strictly seattle and sometimes brooklyn phenomenon it's very weird like I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that um i you know i think i think there are a lot of artists who are considered sort of well we just said this a while ago there are a lot of uh movies and filmmakers who people consider sort of mandatory that you must like yeah um like uh two quick example well three quick examples that come to mind 2001 a space odyssey previously mentioned yeah uh, citizen kane Right, yeah, that's a good example. Which, you know, I I recognize that it's that it's groundbreaking for its time. Do I find it a, a terribly engaging film to watch? Uh, I don't. Know. I mean, I might have to watch it again to come to that conclusion. But I don't remember it feeling I don't think like you're that. Alone. I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah, but it's and, this strange, unspoken like rule that you're supposed to like. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. It's, it's like weird, it's just yeah. considered mandatory. Just like I mean, the Beatles are sort of mandatory. But I don't right. love the Beatles. I'm more of a Stones guy. And Fair but enough. I mean, if you walk into a room like, <laughs> if you walk into like WFUV the the Facebook page and start hating on the Beatles, watch what happens. <laughs> watch what happens. You will get eviscerated. I've yeah. done it. Yes, I trolled them a little bit because I, I, it's just fun. Yeah, look, when I put on the Beatles, I like what I hear. But am I compelled to put on the Beatles often? No, I, yeah. I just find them kind of like overplayed. People are gonna. St- I know you're gonna get some hate mail for this. I'm gonna get some hate mail. What's up, Jackie? But I, I just don't. I Kayla. Hello. No, it's JC. My friend JC got on. Hey, what's up? What's up? Um. But yeah, you have a point in that. But there's this mandatory like you must love Quentin Tarantino. You must right, love yes. Stanley Kubrick. You must love. But what if you know? What if you love like four other, you know, all equally talented filmmakers, and you're a Stones guy instead of a bit like who cares? Like yeah. The- I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Zed's Not Dead podcast with our guest Jeffrey Turboff. You'll be able to find him at Film Kicks on Instagram. 
You can also find some of the links to his films in the description below on this video. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Max, the Gen Z podcaster here, signing off.